Well, church, if you would, please go ahead and turn with me to Revelation chapter 17. Uh, that's the text of scripture we're going to be reading this morning. I want to invite Hannah Root up. Hannah is going to be reading for us this morning. If you would, if you're able, please stand with us out of respect for God's word. Uh, if you're new to Central and you're like, ah, why are they standing? Like, uh, this is something we do because we believe that the words we're about to hear were given to us by the living God. Uh, and so um, we do it not because this is a magical thing, because, but because we believe that we need to posture ourselves out of respect for what we're about to read and what we're about to see in Revelation. So Revelation chapter 17, and I'll pass it off to you. All right. Good morning, church family. All right, Revelation chapter 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and said to me, Come. I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly, but the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction, and the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is the eighth, but it belongs to the seven. And it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are the ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked, and devour her flesh, and burn her up with fire. For God has put into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind, and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. 
Hear the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Amen. Thanks, Hannah. Let's pray. Father, come to this text. It's a, it's a complex one. There's a lot here, uh, as has been the case with every single um, text that we've looked at in this book that you've given to us. And so, uh, Lord, just my, my prayer this morning is in accordance with verse 9, that, um, Lord, you would give us a mind of wisdom. Uh, Father, that we, we need your help to see these things, to, to um, be anchored to truth. Lord, we need your spirit to lead us to truth. And then even once we get there, we need your spirit to work in us, uh, to correct us, to um, to, to rebuke us, to encourage us, to do all the things that Scripture is called uh, to, to be fruitful to do in the lives of your people. And so, Lord, we pray uh, that you'd be with us, that you'd guide us, that you'd direct us. Lord, certainly ask that you would speak through me this morning. Uh, I just know I, I'm not sufficient to cover everything that's here. And so um, may you help us to gain and glean what we need to gain and glean today for this day. Um, and so, Lord, just ask that you be present with us, and we ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be in the chapters uh, of 17 and 18. We'll kind of be in both of them a little bit today, but mostly in chapter 17. As we enter into um, this text, um, one of the questions I want to start off with is really, um, what is our goal as we come into this text? In other words, what is God's goal for giving us this text of Scripture um, for His people down through the ages? And that's a really important question because if we don't understand the ultimate goal for why God is giving us the text, uh, then it'd be easy for us to find ourselves doing things or applying it in ways that it's not intended to. Um, and we certainly could find ourselves uh, like kind of moving in the wrong paths without even realizing it. And I just think, for example, if you're a, a runner in this space, I know there's a few of you, but if you um, are one that loves to run and you're trying to shave off time of your mile distance, uh, like if that's your goal, then the night before that race, you're not going to stay up till three o'clock in the morning eating donuts because that's not going to help you get to your goal. So understanding the goal is really important. And I look at this text, and my first thing is like, man, like, why did God have you given this to us? Well, like, is it to make us fearful? Uh, like, is it to make us kind of um, a, a little bit more um, zealous for who you are and your work? Is it to make us uncomfortable? Is it to make us um, maybe, maybe more comfortable to understand how God's going to play things out in the end? Like, is it to help us be able to pick out in the future? Oh, like, that's the beast, and well, then that's the prostitute. I can see them, and we can kind of call them out. Like, some have used this text that way, and it hasn't always gone well for people, has it? Like, because we tend to point to the wrong things. But, but what's the goal? Well, I'm grateful that the goal of this text is not left to us to just kind of make up or decide. He's told us what the goal is for this text. He just hasn't done it in chapter 17. We need to go to chapter 18 to see what the goal is that God has for us as his people as we read this. So what is it? What's this? Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. This is God's goal for you and for me, for my family, for your family, for all the nations of this world who have, have cast their faith and their trust in Jesus. Is The call is, the command is, come out of her. Like Now, is this command, which that's what it is, is this command for us here in 2023? Well, I believe that it is. 
I deeply believe it is. In fact, as we look at this, as we go deeper into this text uh, over the next couple of moments, I think that you'll see that not only is this a command for us, but this is an urgent command for us in this day and in this age. Now, in the next two weeks, what we're going to be doing, we're actually going to break this up because we have two primary things that we want to accomplish. The first is going to be next week. We're going to, well, it's not the first, it's the second. Next week, um, we're going to be looking at specific and practical ways that the church is being and can come up out of Babylon, like this great city that we're going to talk about today. Like, how do we do this? But before we get to those specifics, we need to have a better understanding of who the beast is. And this prostitute, who's called Babylon, who sits upon his back, who they are. Because if our goal is to come up out of her, but we don't know who she is, we don't know what this city is, it's not going to matter because we're not going to see her coming. We're not going to see when we're in the midst of her in the first place. I remember when I was a kid, I grew up in College Hill. Uh, College Hill is a little part of uh, Wichita. It's an older part of Wichita, and we grew up not too far from the park over there. And I remember I was in high school, and I was outside, and I was playing basketball um, one day. It was a spring day. It was a hot day, but the clouds kind of came in. And if you've been in Kansas, you'll know exactly this feeling that I'm about to describe. I was playing basketball. Clouds came in, and suddenly, out of nowhere, um, this huge wind came in, and it went from like 90 degrees to 70 in like five seconds, right? Like you've felt that. And then right after the wind comes, it gets eerily calm and quiet, And I remember that feeling, like that is anchored into my mind, that feeling of what that experience was like. And I remember looking up into the sky, and I remember seeing three funnel clouds in the sky. And so I ran inside, and I was like, Mom, Dad, like we got to get down to the basement. And by the time we got down in the basement, the alarm sounded, and those funnel clouds had turned into tornadoes. One landed in College Hill Park, uh, one landed in our neighborhood. And, and, And here's the thing about that, and this is why I tell you the story, is because of this. If... We wait for an alarm to come and we don't understand the signs, sometimes it's too late. We're being given certain signs and warnings so that we understand who this Babylon is, this great city is, so that we don't find ourselves stuck in the storm when, and waiting for the alarm. Like, we don't want to wait for the alarm to come. We want to know now. We want to see who she is now so we can see and be prepared and be ready. And I think that is what this text is ultimately about. And so as we jump into it, as we look at this dangerous, this dangerous image of a woman on the back of a beast, such a strange image, let's start where the angel starts in Revelation chapter 17, verses 1b through 2. It says this, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute. Who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. This is where it starts. It starts with her judgment. We are going to see her punishment. The angel wants us to start by recognizing her end. The word for judgment here in the Greek is not one of making a verdict or making a distinction. Like You're not judging between good apples and bad apples. The word here is the punishment that comes after the judgment has been made. In other words, this woman has already been declared guilty. We're about to see her punishment, her judgment come upon her. 
And this is something we've seen coming already in the book of Revelation. You remember, in Revelation chapter 14, verse 8, we heard this. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. We see the exact same declaration in chapter 18, verse 2. And in chapter 17, we see the beginnings of her fall. And it's a really weird picture. Because you start this chapter off, right? And, and, and there's this woman on the back of the beast. And then by the end of chapter 17, the beast has turned on the woman. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Like, what is going on? Like, this is crazy. Like, they seem to be working together. But then at the end of the chapter, the beast is going after the woman. Our calling to come out of her is even tied to this judgment. Go back to 18.4. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Like, there is a contrast here. You're either in the great city, you're a part of the great city and all she stands for, or you're going to come out of her. If you are a part of her, you are going to partake in her sins, and as a result, you will suffer the plagues that are coming upon her. Like Jesus, God is saying, like, listen, church, here she is, come out of her, don't take part in her sins, so you don't ultimately take part in her plagues. This alone should make us desire to be watchful. We don't want to be a part of this. I don't want to be a part of this. We don't want, we should have nothing to do with this. We want to get away from this as far as we possibly can. Because when God's judgment comes upon her, it's going to be a terrible, terrible thing. Now, understanding her end, what is it and who is it that she is and what is her goal? Well, the text tells us what her goals are. Let's consider what we see in chapter 17 and chapter 18. First, she wants to make people drunk. It's an interesting thing. See that in verse 2. She wants to make people drunk with her immorality. This idea of a prostitute, this idea of making people drunk with immorality is tied to Old Testament ideas where this imagery often represents the idea of both spiritual idolatry and unfaithfulness against the one true God and the physical ways that plays itself out in wickedness in the people of Israel, right? And so you see two different things. Over and over again in the Old Testament, it talks of the people of God who have, uh, they've cheated on the Lord, right? The book of Hosea, the, the prophets. And, and what they've done is they've sold themselves out to immorality, and that plays itself out in the way they live their lives. And this, this woman on the back of this beast, she wants to make people drunk on her immorality, leading them to unfaithfulness. Her goal is to intoxicate you and me. Now think about what that means. To make us lose our inhibitions, remove our conscience, make us have impaired judgment about what is right and what is wrong, to blur our vision so we can't see straight. This is like the great beer goggles of spirituality, right? Like that's what she's trying to do. And we say that and kind of say it's funny, but, but the reality is that's what she's trying to accomplish. 
She wants to impair the judgment of this world. She wants to get us drunk, coming back and back over and over again for the pleasures that she has. This is her goal. She wants to intoxicate the world. Verse 4 tells us that she also seeks to seduce, to make us walk away from our true love. She is dripping with power and luxury and pleasure and wealth and leisure. She wants to turn our eyes away from our true love. Proverbs 7, which we're going to talk about more next week, is a whole chapter warning us to stay away from a woman like this, to cling to our true love. She wants to make us drunk. She wants to seduce. But she also wants to rule over us. See this in verse 1. Where is she seated? She is seated upon many waters. And what does that mean? Well, verse 15 of chapter 17 tells us what this means. The angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. She she sits upon and over those who dwell upon the earth. Like she wants to rule over. And we're going to see how this plays itself out as we go on this morning. Next, we see in Revelation chapter 18, verse 7, that she wants to glorify herself. She wants to stand in pride against the glory of God. She does this in her luxury, going so far as to say this in chapter chapter 18, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. Do you see the pride? I can protect myself from any suffering, any difficulty. Like, I am good enough. I can be God. There's nothing that can harm me. Like, I sit above all of this. And then last but not least, we also see that she wants to become drunk as well. She wants to become drunk on the blood of the saints. Her goal is to kill us, to lead us either physically to death or spiritually to death, which to me is the scariest of all. Like she wants to kill us. Does this sound like this woman wants your good and my good? Does this sound like somebody you want to be a part of? She's trying to get you drunk, to seduce you, to rule over you, to lead you away from your true love, to glorify herself, and to ultimately kill you. Her and the beast she rides wants nothing but harm to come to you and to me and our kids and our families and our churches. Sounds like somebody we want to be a part of, doesn't it? Like, we should look at this and be like, whoa, like, this person She's, whoever this represents, like we need to run from her. We need to stay far away from her. Now here's the question. We know what her goals are now. Now she's trying to do. Now the question is, who is she? What is she? Well, let's start with the beast. There's a lot in this text about the beast. If you remember, we've seen this beast before. Back in chapter 13, we saw the beast represents kind of this persecuting power of the demonized states, represented in kingdoms and individuals all throughout the ages. This imagery is pointed to again in a very similar symbols. And it's further validated in verse 9. And if you look at verse 9, what it says 
is it says that this calls for a mind of wisdom and the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. How does this help us? Well, the seven heads and the seven mountains most scholars would believe represents Rome and or a Rome-like state because in the ancient world when this was written, Rome was known as the city on seven hills. So here's the thing. So does this mean this is only talking about Rome? No, that's not at all what that's doing. This is something what we call topology in the scriptures. This is a type of thing. So it may have meant Rome, but it also means a type of Rome, something that is like Rome. The beast represents an empire, an individual that may have many iterations throughout the ages, which is an idea, and I think the idea conveyed by this text when it says, this was and is and is yet to come. Like it's been around, this beast has. And it seems that there's going to be a future fulfillment that isn't Rome, but is like Rome. So they just think if you were a first century Christian and you hear this, you know what Rome stands for. Idolatry, worship of an emperor, immorality, like you understand all of that. And what we're being told is something like that is coming. See that very clearly in Revelation 17, 12. The ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. And that one, that one hour is significant because it's used in Daniel chapter 8 through 12 to refer to the final hour of history when saints will be persecuted, when evil will ultimately be destroyed and saints were rewarded. So while some iterations have been and are present, this seems to point to a final phase or a final iteration of ungodly, kingly power and authority represented in an empire or an individual. That's the beast. That's the beast. You say, well, how does that help us identify the woman who sits on the back of the beast that will or has and does ride upon these kind of earthly agents, these spiritual forces. The idea of earthly power and this kind of unfaithfulness, it's been seen in other parts of the Old Testament. To help us interpret what we're talking about and what we're seeing here, you can look to a text like Isaiah 23, verse 17, which talks about an earthly kingdom of wealth and power. Isaiah 23, verse 17 says, At the end of 70 years, the Lord will visit Tyre. Tyre was a real country. It was a real place geographically located, and what does he say? And she, Tyre, will return to her wages and will prostitute herself with all the kingdoms of the world on the face of the earth. So here in this view, Tyre is a a, a nation that with its great economics and its wealth and its luxury and its trade goes out to seduce the whole world. So, I agree with G.K. Bill, who says this, Babylon is the prevailing economic religious system in alliance with the state and its related authorities as it exists in various forms throughout the ages. This understanding is validated by the vision of her dripping with luxury and wealth in chapter 17, as well as the lament in chapter 18, which we didn't read this morning, but we will next week, of the king's 
and the merchants and the shipmasters who gained wealth from her luxury. And as she falls, like they weep and they're in torment because how are they going to be able to sustain all this pleasure and all this wealth in their world now? And like, so this seems to be what's happening, that this is a spirit of an age, a spirit of, of idolatry that comes from pleasure and wealth. This is a great economic and religious engine of idolatry. Now just think for a second. Think about how this plays itself out. Think about countries in our world. Think about our country. There's a, a government that's led by people, but that we know that Scripture tells us that there's spiritual forces behind some of those leading. And I'm not talking just specifically here. You can take any. Take Rome. Let's use that. It's a little less personal, right? And Rome was led by um, men. It was led by an emperor. And we see that that emperor was trying to be seen as God. And so there's a spiritual reality behind it. But on and that empire allowed for an economy of mass pleasure to be found. Right? So, so just immorality all over the place. Wealth and luxury. This is very similar to what we see in our own day and age. And just think about what we live in. Imagine the images that you see on commercials every day. Just think about it for a second. Maybe you don't watch a lot of TV. Maybe you remember another time. Imagine or driving down the street and the billboards you see or the things you see come to you on, uh, on your YouTube channels or your Instagram page or whatever it is. Like just think of all of the imagery that comes. Is it godly? No. It's anything but godly. It's like the vision of the woman in this text dripping with luxury, dripping with gold, dripping with all of these things and pleasure and making all of these promises. Like this is the cultural ideal, the cultural virtue. Like this is the spirit of our age. More. Please yourself. You're the most important person in the world. They're all dripping with these promises of comforts and materials. We see it all over the place. See the algorithms taking your attention and holding on to you. So even if in a moment you're like, man, I really would love to have that big TV. And you go online and you look up that big TV and you're like, man, it's a 65 inch. That's not even that big anymore. But like this beautiful 8K display and you look that up one time. But then you're like, you know what? I don't need that. I shouldn't spend the money on that. And you walk away from it. For the next six months, every time you turn on your computer, you're going to get barraged with ads about the TV until you cave. It knows what it's doing. It knows what you're looking for. It knows what you're being tempted to. And I'm not, I'm not just talking about computer algorithms. Those are, those are just neutral. But the enemy knows how to use that stuff. And what's behind it is this spirit of like discontentment and more and consumption and luxury, making promises to us all the time. And here's what I believe. I said the behind that is that this is the very woman we're getting picture of in Revelation chapter 17. And she is leveraging the desires of our flesh, the desires of our eyes, and the pride of life, which is exactly what John tells us about in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. For all that is in the world... The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So in short, she, this woman who sits upon this beast, she is the spirit of selfish, fleshly desire. 
And now we see what she offers. The powers of this world enable and support this spirit, and the tools of her trade are lust, pleasure, gain, wealth, leisure, entertainment, luxury, and she offers a beautiful and attractive picture of what life can be. She promises some very specific things. Revelation chapter 17, verse 4. It's all shown in, in how she's portrayed. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. She's clothed and arrayed in purple and scarlet. And throughout Scripture, we see what that means. It's the idea of power and authority. She's trying to offer as a means to get you drunk and to seduce you and turn your eyes away from the living God. She's trying to offer you power and authority. Man, if you give way to this, like you're going to find respect and you're going to find power and you're going to find authority more than you could ever possibly dream, more influence, more strength. And do you not see this in our day and age? Do you not see this promise all over us, around us? Man, through success, you can get this job, you can get this position, you can be seen as an expert in this thing, you can become an influencer. To get on top of the ladder, to move to this neighborhood, to be part of this club, to be part of this society. Like she is saying, like if you get power, if you get respect, then man, your life will be better. And it will be good. And it will be beautiful. She's using that to seduce, to turn our eyes. Man, just pursue that. Let that become your primary pursuit. Not God. What is God going to give you? What is, what is Jesus going to give you? Like, look at what you can have. This is what she's doing. She's adorned with what seems to be power and authority, but she's also adorned with gold and jewels, and pearls. She offers the promise that with enough money and enough things, we can have happiness. Who isn't seduced by this idea? Can we just be honest? Like, Don't we all feel that at some level? Like, I do. I, I, in fact, um, right here, uh, I've got a $100 bill. It's actually a real one. And if I told you that there's an envelope underneath one of your chairs with nine more of these. And you know, some of y'all are like, I, I don't know if he's being serious. Like, should I check? Like, if there really was, and it was underneath your chair, my guess, it would be really hard for you to listen to anything else I would say the rest of this time. Right? Because you're all thinking like, dude, $1,000, like what can I do with $1,000? I mean, if you're a kid, you're like, man, I'm thinking of all the Lego sets and video games or the shoes and the clothes that I can buy. If you're an adult, it's probably something a little bit more practical. It's like, man, I can pay that bill. I can go on a little better vacation. Man, I'd love to get that microwave I've been looking for all these times. Maybe just some coffee at the Spice Merchant because you need that much. But that stuff is good, Right? And so you're going to be thinking about all of this stuff. And you're like, man, like, I, I could do this and I could do that. And you're going to lose track of everything. Why? Because it is so easy for us to slip into believing that that is going to make us happy. And we could find it. And we, we all feel it. Like, I'm no different than the rest of us. And here's the deal. Is it because this is sinful? No. Is it because the bill that you can pay with this sinful? 
No. Is it because the house that you could buy with this is sinful? No, that's not the point at all. It's because we so easily can slip into believing that this can make us happy. That this is worth us worshiping. It promises something to us. It says, man, like, just chase me. Come get me. It's something that speaks to every one of our, I'm putting this back in my pocket, by the way. But it speaks to the desires of our flesh, doesn't it? Like, man, I could fulfill so much of the desires of my flesh. This is what she offers us. This is what she puts in front of us and dangles in front of us and says, man, like, look, come on in. Come into my house. Like, turn away from your true love. This is better. But she also holds a cup in her hand cup full of abominations and impurities of her immorality. I believe that this includes, but is not necessarily limited to, but definitely includes sexual sin. This is all the abominations that come from a spirit that seeks to fulfill pleasure of our flesh. It's the representation of all that we run to when we feel discontentment, when we feel sad, when we feel lonely, we feel depressed, We feel like failures, we feel bored, we feel unhappy, we feel uneasy, we feel sick. It's anything that promises to turn our gray world into a world full of rainbows. And isn't that fitting in this month? Man, if you just give way, the grayness of your life can all be taken away with this. It's this idealized world in our minds. Man, our, our pleasure can fix all of our problems. Like if we just run to it. If I just have more of this, more food, more of a high, more laughter, more entertainment, more vacations, more better vacations, whatever it is. And listen, some of these things, they're not bad. But there's a spiritual force that is trying to offer us all kinds of false hopes through economic and religious means to offer us all kinds of things to satisfy those desires, the ones that 1 John talks of. And she's doing it because she wants to turn our eyes from our true love. Because she wants to make us drunk. She wants to make us drunk. She wants to turn our hearts away from it. You know, the scripture tells us what the end days are going to look like. And it's a list of a lot of the stuff that I've talked about. But it also says that the love of men will grow cold. Do, Do we see that in our day and age? Why does the love of men grow cold when our number one virtue in pursuit becomes to fulfill our own pleasure? You know why? Because you don't care about anybody but yourself. Like now, the only person that matters is me, and everybody else becomes an object to get what I want. Right? So so I don't care about you. You just become an object. I'm going to get what I want through you. I don't need to care about that baby. That doesn't make any difference to me because that gets in my way. Like the love of men growing cold happens when the only people we see in the mirror is ourselves. And our entire world comes about pleasing ourselves. We don't care the damage that happens to that person that we're looking at on the internet. We don't care the damage that's happening to those people or that person. Like we just don't care because what matters is my pleasure my pursuit, my happiness, me doing what makes me feel the best. And then let me ask this question. 
What happens when you give way to her and you begin to go to that and you begin to find yourself? Do you find freedom or slavery? She now rules over you, doesn't she? You went to her to find pleasure. You went to her to find joy. You went to her to find satisfaction. And now you find her ruling over you. This is what she's accomplishing. This is what's trying to be taken. This is what's trying to be, trying to happen to us. Listen, the world, the country we live in, and I'm just going to say this, is marked more by this spirit than a spirit of godliness. That's scary, isn't it? Like, we look more like Babylon than we do like a city on a hill. And we need to see that. We need to recognize it. And we're marketing it to everyone and everywhere. So how do we respond? Because here's the thing, and we're going to see this next week, but we, the church, should be the greatest hindrance to this woman in this world. Why? Because we don't care about ourselves. We lay our lives down. We die to the cross. And we're not all about pleasure for ourselves. We're not all about the luxuries and the wealth of this world. We're about our king and our true love and our bride. Like we should make this and those who follow this woman livid. And guess what? They are. And we're going to see that more next week. Yet, fact of the matter is, she's beautiful. I want you to hear the words of John. Think about who John is. We're talking about John the Apostle. John, the one who walked with Jesus, who was called the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is the same John who saw Jesus die on the cross, who saw him raised from the dead. The same John who is willing to sacrifice. He's willing to be exiled onto an island called Patmos. The same John who has literally been taken up into the throne room of God. The same John who knows exactly who this woman is and exactly what she's doing even to the point where she's drinking the blood of the saints. What does he say? When I saw her, I marveled greatly. The word marvel in the Greek is thamazu, and it means admiration or amazement, wonder. And it's used elsewhere in Revelation in chapter 17, verse 8, and chapter 13, verse 3, where the world marvels at the beast in a way that leads to their worship. She is so beautiful that John, even John, in this moment is being tempted by her. This is why the angel rebukes him. Why do you marvel at her? Do you see what's happening in this text? John sees her, and he marvels at her, and the angel's like, why are you marveling? Don't you know what's about to happen to her? Why is this important for us? I think the lesson that is here for us is clear. If John was drawn by her beauty, are we not also in danger? I think the answer is absolutely is. Church, we must know her We must look for her. We must see her in the advertisements, see her in the social medias, see her in the cultural message of the day, see her in our governments, see her everywhere because she is everywhere. 
It's one of the reasons why one of the most profitable industries in 2022 was the pornographic industry. $1.1 billion. That's insane. That's why, because she's everywhere. And she is so, so seductive because she speaks and knows to the most powerful part of who we are, and that is our flesh, our nature. Paul felt it. He wrestled with it. If you've been a Christian for long, you've heard this text because it's an encouragement, I think, to most of us. It's out of Romans chapter 7. Just listen to Paul. I don't understand my own actions. Anybody? Like, have you ever felt this? Like, you know what? Can I just say, if you have ever felt this, can you raise your hands? Like, I don't understand my own actions. Like, this is good. For I don't know what I want, or for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, that it's good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right. Do you see the turmoil? But not the ability to carry it out. For I did not do the good I want, but the evil I do. But the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? Like if you wrestle with this stuff, it's because you still have your tainted flesh with you. It's always going to be a battle. But that never should lead us to give up on the battle, amen? Like, we should always be like, Paul, I'm like, why am I doing this? Like, who's going to deliver me from this? And some would say that this woman, that this is something in the future, that this is yet to come, that the beast hasn't come and she has not climbed up on his back yet to begin to seduce the world. Listen, if that's how you believe, that's great. Maybe you're right. But let me just tell you, that is not comforting to me. You wonder why it's not comforting to me? Because if Babylon the Great has yet to climb upon this beast in such final and seductive ways, we are in serious trouble. Because many in the church are already being seduced by her. If we as the church are struggling to come out of her now, what will happen to us when the beast and the woman are manifested in even greater power and prominence in the future. Like if you're saying, oh, yeah, this isn't something we need to worry about now. This is in the future. No, no, no. This is massively something we need to be worried about now because the church is struggling today with this. Now. And if it's going to get worse, we need to be prepared and see the signs instead of wait until the alarm comes. Amen? So I, I want to close with this. We see an image of the beast who has supported this spirit. At the end of the day, she turns, or the beast turns upon the woman in hatred to devour her. Here's what I think that this text is telling us. If initially, these two are working in tandem together, but really all this is about worship, isn't it? Like, isn't this all really about worship? Like, we're to worship the one true God. And this woman is trying to take that worship so that we'll worship her and all that she promises. But the beast also wants that worship. It's all about worship. And I believe there's going to be a day when the beast will be done with her. 
knowing that if she is destroyed, people will turn to the beast in worship. They'll turn to the beast in worship. I'm just, just imagine for a second. What happens if our economic engine were to screech to a halt? And I mean the economic engine that allows all the pleasures and all the idolatry and all the luxuries and all of the wealth in our world. If that screeches to a halt tomorrow, like what we see in chapter 18 of Revelation, when all that power goes away, what will people do? Who will they turn to? Will they turn to God? No, history tells us that's not at all what they do. History tells us they turn to human rule. Fix it. Bring it back. Bring it back. Like we've even seen nations in history who want the worship of its people do this very thing. Think of communist nations, socialist nations, right? Like you equalize everything, you take away the ability for luxury so that you'll worship the state. Like this is not outside of history's purview. Like we've seen this stuff happen before. I think that's what we're seeing here in the text. Now, how that's gonna play itself out, we don't know. But I do think that there's going to be a day and age when our ability to chase the promises of this prostitute becomes severely inhibited. And so who will we look to? Government, make more policies, print more money, tax those people, not us. Just imagine what's going to be like. It's certainly an interesting question. But the ultimate question is how will we respond when she goes away? See, if we have not sold ourselves to her in idolatry like Israel did to the nations that were around them, then when her death comes, we won't experience the same fear and want that the world does. If we have already come out of her in the same way that Lot came out of Sodom and Gomorrah, then her destruction is not going to cause us torment. But if we haven't, and we've put our trust in those things, then as soon as it's gone, we're going to find ourselves in the same kind of torment, experiencing the same plagues, just like the rest of the world, which is exactly what God tells us. Come out of her, lest you take part in her sins, lest you experience her plagues. So the goal as we leave today is the same as it is when we came out or we came into this day, which is to come out of her. I deeply encourage you to be here next week to hear how we can do that very specifically. How can we be faithful to that goal? How can we be faithful to that call? But for this week, we've seen her and I want you to take this week and I want you to become aware of her presence everywhere. I want you to be aware of her presence towards your kids, your families, in the media you watch, in the billboards you see, the promises of stuff in your stores. I want you to see the cultural reality that's there. And on your, your take home questions, there's three of them and I want you to just take these home. And so as you leave, grab this, but these are the questions. I want you to talk with one another about how you see this woman in our culture. How do you see her represented? Considering the marketing, the products, YouTube, Instagram, video games, the good life. Second question is discuss in your home, why is she so attractive? Like why is she so hard to resist sometimes? 
You know what? Moms, dads, one of the best things you can do for your kids is tell your kids your own weaknesses and why certain things are struggles for you and why certain things speak to your flesh. Like, why is she so attractive? Thirdly, and this is probably one of the hardest ones, how can we as Christians live a balance between recognizing her goals yet not declaring that every good gift is sinful? For example, Is there anything inherently wrong with having an iPhone? No. Is there anything inherently wrong with having a nice house? No. So how do we walk this balance, right? Where we experience the good gifts of God, and yet we also recognize the temptation of the spirit of the age to worship and trust those things. That's that's a hard balance. And we need to be talking about that in your home. And there can be nothing better than you can do in your house than to be talking through those things this week praying about these things this week. And so I'd encourage you to do so. Let's pray and then we'll sing a song and we'll close our time. Father, again, start this, close this morning with the same prayer that we started. Lord, give us a mind with wisdom. Give us a spirit of understanding. Lord, I I believe deeply that Right now in our world, we are experiencing the opportunities to engage with this spirit unlike has ever been possible before, certainly since Rome. The temptations to our flesh, they're everywhere, everywhere. They've made it into the church They've made it into our lives and our homes and we just haven't seen it and we haven't been aware of it. And Lord, I just want to pray that you would open our eyes to it so that we wouldn't take part in our sins. Father, we wouldn't fall to the plagues that are coming upon her. Father, so we'll be prepared so that we wouldn't turn our eyes from our true love. And so, Lord, I just pray, though, I think the goal this morning, like, is just that we would have our eyes open to the presence of the Spirit in our lives and in our world. And, Lord, we would be willing to make steps, like radical steps to change, radical steps to come out of her, radical steps to be different and set apart from this world. Lord, as families and as individuals, as men and women, sons and daughters, young people, even down to the youngest of people in this room, that they would be willing and want to make those decisions, that they would be found faithful, chosen, calling. Lord, I just pray that that would be the result and the fruit that you would bear by your spirit in us today. So I just give that to you. I that you would accomplish that. Father, would you do that work in our hearts? Lord, as we now close our time with the song of worship, Lord, I just pray that you would help us to turn our eyes to you, our King, our true love, our true Lord. Just pray these things in your name.